Hi everybody and uh, welcome to this episode of Now and Men, the podcast about men, masculinities and gender equality. I'm Stephen Burrell and I'm here with Sandy Rexon as always. Hi Sandy. Hi Stephen. Now today we're speaking to Luis Lineo. We know Luis because he works at the Secretariat for Men Engage Europe. So Men Engage being a global network of civil society organisations working with men and boys for gender equality. Yes, and Luis lives in Sweden and also works for an organisation called MEN. Um, and so MEN is a, is a leading organisation in Sweden and in Europe more broadly, working on preventing men's violence against women and a range of other masculinity and gender equality issues. And Luis is a busy man. He's been working as a journalist and sexuality educator, engaged in gender equality issues for, for over 15 years, I think. He was also born and raised in Ukraine and lived there for the first 12 years of his life. So, so for all these different reasons, we thought it was a really good and important time to talk to him for now and men. So hi, Luis. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Hi, Sandin. Hi, Stephen. Really nice to see you and hear you. <laughs> Okay, to start with something very topical, I, I believe you still got friends and family in Ukraine. So no doubt it's been and, and remains, you know, a very stressful situation for you and for those you know, particularly those in conflict areas, but also for those who've, who've had to flee their homes. So I'm wondering to what extent you've been able to maintain contact with your friends and, and family in, in Ukraine. Yeah, Sure. I mean, I mean, uh, yeah, the first days of the war that was really dreadful. I mean, and all the situations really, really awful, in many ways. And uh, I tried to connect to to my friends as much as I could to all the loved ones they have. Uh, but it was really, I mean, I couldn't quite work to be honest with this situation. So, uh, but then after a while, you know, we we actually got um, a family from Ukraine coming in, and they they are living in with us currently uh, since it's almost two months now, actually, uh, I think. So, so that that they've been here with us. So it's um, uh, yeah. So it's getting. Uh, the words really close to me and to my family and to my friends, and uh, it got actually, to, to be honest, a bit easier for me when when this family came into our lives here in Sweden. So, but now it's back again. I don't know. It goes back uh, back and forth. I would say with the feelings and what with the uh, I feel helpless, you know, and don't know what to do. And actually, to be to be honest, also my one of my best friends that I've that I've kept in touch with. I have I actually haven't talked to him since since the first day of the war. So I'm not able to get in touch with him. And I know he's been in Mariupol for a while. So yeah, so I'm not even get, I'm not trying to get into that to think too much. Uh, I know he's been he's been gone before and then come came back. So I'm really hoping for for that that, that he will so, suddenly appear again. Right. Oh, that must be truly upsetting for you. But um, um, I, I'm wondering also how, how it feels to see the, the devastation that's being wrought on the country by the Russian invasion. I mean, you obviously knew it at a very different time, but that must be... Yeah. Yeah. Well, well that's that's the thing. I mean, it's, uh, you know, when you talk to your friends and they're in the middle of it, it's like, you don't know what to do and how to help them. And you, I mean, you hear the the bombs are falling where your school is or where, where you used to live. And, and it's like, you know, it's it gets really, really close to, to you. So, um, I mean, some of them are, you know, getting into the army or trying to in some kind of forces. Some some of them are fleeing uh, the families. And uh, well, most of my because I was bo I was born in the western Western Ukraine, but I, I lived in Kiev uh, for like 10 years. So 
so most of my my friends are in Kiev, and yeah, and, uh, and to be honest, most of them are actually working and uh, yeah, trying to trying to 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 have it as normal as possible. But but some of their families actually uh, in the western of Ukraine, uh, mm. if they haven't left left the country, so so the the families are split up. Most of the families are split up right now. Mm. Uh, so most of the women and and uh, children are in in the western uh, western parts of ukraine or in kiev or left the country and uh, the friends and and people i know in the eastern part all of them that i know either haven't got in touch with them or they have fled from from the eastern parts right right i mean going back a stage i wonder if you could say something about how your life and you know what were your experiences like in in kiev when you were growing up how, mm-hmm. how was that i mean that was under the soviet union wasn't it yeah, exactly. I was born in seventy six, so it's it was Soviet Union prime time, I would say. Uh, no, well, so I, I was like, like my my parents are from Chile, so they they were students in in the Soviet Union, and they were studying, and that that's where I was born. And so so basically, I was born and raised in in Ukraine and and the former Soviet Union, and I lived basically only with students, like in student apartments, most of my life. Uh, but also my well, for for mo- for the most, my mom was a single mom. Uh, like almost all all of the period, so I was actually the only child to uh, only woman <laughs> from Chile. We didn't have any family and so on. So I actually also went to like a boarding school, you could say. Like uh, for uh, mo- most of my my friends in school were like either they didn't have parents or they lived with their uh, grandparents or their parents were like you know had some kind of troubles and so on. And uh, yeah, and my I was a single a child with a single mom who was who was studying a lot. So yeah, so I actually kind of lived in the school for for most of the time. And I I saw my mom sometimes like in the weekends, and because uh, I I it was kind of close to where we lived, so I could actually go home in some evenings and so on. But yeah, so I I was brought up a bit in the school, you could say. Gosh, that sounds so yeah. tough. I mean, did you have uh, siblings who were going through the same experience as you? No, my well my. Uh, my sister, she was born on. Uh, she was born when I was eight years old. Because I actually, you know, thought that I'm not going to have any siblings. But then uh, I had my sister came when I was eight, and she was like really, really small. So she went to like kindergarten and so on. And then we actually left. We left uh, uh, Soviet Union for Sweden when I was 12, 13 years old. So at that time, she was about four years old. So. Uh, she never went to to school like me. She just went to the and the kindergarten was closer to the home. And also, my mom. It was easy for my mom to to take care of both of us. So, I I could I could al- always leave school and and be home. You know, if I wanted to. So uh, it it got easier uh, when 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 I got my sister. Um, yeah, and then we and then we we moved to Sweden. But that yeah, but been, I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> extraordinary transition. I mean, how was that moving yeah, from one was, to the I other? Mean, yeah, it was really crazy. I know, you know, I'm I, I, like I was ten years old, eighty six, when Chernobyl hit hit uh, the. So we had to we had to evacuate to to the southern parts of like to the to the Az- Azov uh, Sea actually to be, and um, with all my class and my 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 mom and my sister they had to move somewhere else for a while and then, you know, it was it was at the time. I mean. 
you know, we were listening to like Europe, that Swedish, the Swedish uh, rock band, like in, uh, in, uh, we, we, it was kind of forbidden to listen to music like that. You know, it's like, it's not like you could, so we were listening to it, uh, during the nights when, when, when all the, the people around us were sleeping, I guess. And, uh, and from that going to the country where, where Europe was from, <laughs> it was like a big, a big difference for sure. I mean, I mean, it's yeah. It was totally a different, uh, different life. I would, I would say, and different. If it was, uh, yeah. If it was forbidden to listen to even music from um, Sweden, was, mm. was it also difficult to get out of Ukraine to go to Sweden? Presumably, no? yeah. Well, well the, the thing is, the thing is, I mean, my mom had to move because she couldn't stay because of her. Uh, she she don't didn't want to be naturalized as a Soviet uh, because then she would never go back to Chile, where she's from. Oh. So we we moved because of that because it was the, you know the glasnost and perestroika time when there was lots of things going on and you kind of could feel that something's going to change here. So yeah, so she kind of moved because of uh, be, to be able to move back to Chile after a while. Uh, so yeah, and she had to decide like I, I know I, I thought I think it it took her like a, a month to from when she decided to go and, and until we we left so. It was in the middle of the summer. It was in August, and I, I just finished my sixth grade and was on, on the way to the seventh grade. And and suddenly my mom came back from she was she was working in Sweden and Norway, and then she came back and she said we're gonna move, <laughs> uh, and then we we had to move just after a couple of weeks. Right. And how was it yeah. arriving in Sweden? I mean, what did what did you feel when you so you started living in this totally different country and different culture and you know yeah. school and yeah, I was in the middle of my like teenage like uh, puberty, you know. So it was really lots of things going on, and it was I mean it was a bit scary at, at times, but it was also very. Uh, I was really you know I was really happy to to see a new country and to travel and you know to. To, to learn new language and to see new 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 places so it was it was both both scary and and uh, yeah and 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 kind of I was really curious in, in that way so so um, and in your living living as refugee for a while and you know you know and uh, it's it's also like a hard hard time because you we had people when we lived like in a refugee camp we had people who took their lives and stuff because it was really hard for them and and you as a as a kid, you were like, "Oh, what what happened there?" Like, "Oh no, somebody like jumped or something." You know, it was it was, uh, yeah, it was kind of it, it was scary and 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 um, a bit of sad situation. But then when you went to school, there, there was some light stuff too, and especially when you got the permit after you got a permit after what, one and a half year or something, uh, then then it, everything is you know gets much easier. And then you think, okay, so we could we could have a future here, and everything opens up and. Sweden is a very good country in in terms of schools and and uh, well it was it's actually changing to the to the worst um, but it it was really good with schools and so on so I mean there's and I mean I I'm 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 like a, a really good example on how how I would say how you can go from I don't know if we if we can say zero to hero but something like that you know <laughs> just like just to to have this uh, this uh, it's not an American story but it's a Swedish story about about how you can you can move from from being a refugee to to having a yeah to living in a house actually and having a good jobs and stuff like that I guess. Mm. It's, it's amazing how wheel the wheels have turned as well and and there you are now hosting a 
uh, Ukrainian refugee family. That must be yeah, exactly, exactly. And we actually, actually, even 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 when we were refugees and we we got the permit, we were actually hiding some people in our in, in our apartment at Oria at that time. So I, I think we've in my in my place before I uh, with my mom we we had two or three families or. Uh, people living with us for a while and and this time is actually the first time i have well we had a syrian we had um, a small apartment before with my family now but but this time it's like a, the whole a whole family that lives with us yeah so i kind of understand them in a way <laughs> yeah of course what was the process like of of getting the family to sweden i mean i partly mm-hmm. ask because yeah. here in the uk you know the gov- it's been we've taken in very few refugees mm-hmm. uh, partly Seemingly because I suppose our government is kind of, uh, you know, that the system is very cumbersome and perhaps even obstructive and there's mm. maybe a lack of competence or even willingness from the government to, yeah. to take in more refugees. So I suppose we're interested in how other countries have been have been doing that. Sure. I mean, in my case was like we were we just got a call from a, an old friend and then he like he told me basically. So I have this brother. And he happened to be in Poland when 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 the war bre- broke out, and and his family there from eastern parts of of uh, from the Donbas region, and he's like, so he's in Poland with his family right now, and they are there are lots of people coming in, so we are wondering they they were thinking on going to Sweden. What what do you think? And then I said like, yeah, of course. I mean, we have a house; they can come, and we can we can see how we can help them. So it went really fast. It went from that call, and then we I had like a day and talked to, to with my family and with my children, and uh, yeah, everybody was on board. And then two days later, they were here. So it was it went really fast. Wow. Um, and I mean, at that time, or still, I think you could actually fly for free from Poland to, to Sweden. They were actually taking uh, at, at, at first, first they were trying to take a, a boat from Gdansk to, to Nynesham, which is close to Stockholm. But then uh, they decided to, they could actually take, take a flight and they did. And they, I met them up in the airport and yeah. So they've been with us since then. It was like, I think it was in the beginning of March. It's like one and a half month ago. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm. That sounds a lot more straightforward than the UK system, mm. <laughs> but but and how's it how's it been going so far? I mean, it must be, I mean, the kind of the things that, that they must have experienced and gone through before getting there, and then the process of getting there, mm. like it must be incredibly stressful and and potentially traumatizing. I mean, yeah, how yes. how's it been? Has it been thus far? Yeah, it is traumatizing, but that's that's the crazy thing. I was kind of traumatized before they came in, but since they came, you know, you kind of shift your your way of thinking. You say, okay, so now my my concentration is is on them, and and you listen to their stories, and I mean. I mean, the, because it's re, it's kind of rare to have the husband as well within, within the family, and he they, he gets lots of questions about that. And his some parts of his family f, f, uh, say that he's a traitor because he he's not not going back. And the, the one of the kids, he's seventeen and a half. He's he's going to be eighteen, like in a couple of uh, let me see, in a couple of yeah, like in one in one month or so. So so uh, and if if he would be eighteen, he wouldn't be able to go. So you know. And because he's a he's a he's a he's a guy, so uh, so of course they they have to think about that. And we, I mean, we we're just saying we understand that your first priority is is your is your uh, family. And then and then I I mean we kind of we try to support them what what 
what we can, I guess. Uh, but yeah, but but as I told you in the beginning, it 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 helped me to to feel better, and it helped me to to focus and helped me to start working again, I guess. Mm. Uh, but 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 now I'm I'm uh, uh, I'm I'm feeling again, you know. Now they actually got the permit after like three three weeks or something, not even that, two weeks or something, and so they uh, have the possibility to start working now. Oh, so, uh, so I actually found one work for for one, for two of two of them already, and they already you know asking oh can so can we have pets you know and you know stuff like that already so it's like it oh. it went really really fast and comparing mm. to how it was when I when we came to Sweden we had to wait at least one and a half year to get the permit and that time was really awful because you don't you cannot work you cannot do anything you know just trying to learn some language and you don't know even if you can be able to start to yeah to to stay. And that brings a lot, a lot, a lot of pressure and lots of stress. But if it goes as fast as it did here, I'm mm. totally sure they will be really adapted really quick because they, you know they already their English has already improved already, and mm. they already started go, getting to Swedish classes. As two of them have some work already, you know. So it's it's getting so much faster, and the and the society is so much more open to to that than, for example, when the mm. Syrian, Afghan, and Somali people came, or when I came to Sweden, for example. So, I think the the civil society is much more, you know, much more open, much more fast, and the and the government is kind of also opening up. Uh, so, so I think they they're gonna have they they're gonna have an easier start. I think actually, mm. and that would be a really good thing. <laughs> Yeah, no, well, it shows what's possible, doesn't it, if there's the will. I mean, why why do you think that that is? I mean, do you think that there is an element of kind of racial prejudice, you know, that Ukrainian refugees are being treated quite differently than other refugees? Uh, that's that's for sure. I'm actually going to have be, be in the panel uh, or I'm going to be moderating a panel later today exactly about that. Who's uh, the real refugee? And we're going to talk about that, how how we feel it's been like the shift on how we talk about these people, how what we do. You know, for example, uh, you could you could fly to Sweden for free and you can also get all the transportation for free here. You just show your Ukrainian passport. And you can have all transportation is for free so they can get around in town without having any money and with only with their passports and that's really you know, it's really easy. I mean, it's it gives you so much more freedom, for example. And and uh, there's other stuff also like if you get a working permit that after three weeks you know it's you get you get started already you can do some some stuff and you can get money you feel secure already you can start mm-hmm. thinking okay maybe we should have an own apartment already you know everything goes so much faster if you open up and and the 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 authorities and I mean the organizations from the employers the employers organizations they are. They are thinking of different, you know, programs for for the refugee people now and so on. So I think I think it's much. I do think there is a racial thing going on for sure. They're Christian, they're white, they you know, uh, and they are clo- I guess in a way closer uh, um, physically. Also, also I mean, the, it's only it's not that far away from Sweden and so on. You know, we even have the same colors in our in our flags. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like you know. Everything only in my in my in my on my street only in my street which is a well-off area you know it's a well it's like a it's a villas you know in that street only that street we only we already have like five uh, Ukrainian families but it wow. but it's a time when it was the Syrian because I just moved we just moved from from apartment to to villa when when the, the crisis was um, you know in 2015 2016 and there was there were 
not 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 even one or two families i i think so it, mm. I, I i don't know i mean i mean i cannot blame my my neighbors for not being taking in but but i see a shift i see a i see a, a different kind of uh, uh, we we do we do treat people differently that's really sad mm. to see mm. Yeah, and I mean, one thing you mentioned there um, about obviously there is this Ukrainian government policy that men, is it aged between 18 and 60, mm. aren't allowed to leave the country. So I suppose that's one illustration of how gender clearly plays out, you know, in in, in wars in a, in a big way. And obviously then that means you've got lots of women and children leaving um, the country as well. Um, yeah, I mean, in a recent episode of our podcast, um, we talked to Paul Highgate about, you know, uh, militarism and masculinities as well. Um, so yeah, lots of different ways in which gender and masculinity is kind of playing out in these kind of horrific conflict situations. So I was just wondering, like, from your perspective, what, what do you think are some of the kind of some of the ways in which a kind of masculinities analysis or perspective is relevant to what's what's going on at the moment. I mean, I would say that's one of the most relevant things because, I mean, as you say, you can you can actually leave the country if you're a woman uh, or if you're your uh, children age if you're less than eighteen years old. But if you're a man, if you're eighteen years old or or older, and you you're a man, you cannot you cannot leave the country. So that's a really, really big thing. And that's, as I told you before also, families split up. So the the men are staying working or helping out with the war and the women and, and children are fleeing and, 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 and that's it. And this is how it looks everywhere, I guess. So of course it's a really gendered thing, and I mean, and also I mean, also with the with the war, you can you can see you can hear the atrocities uh, that that I mean the the rapes and and uh, mm. how how they treat you know the soldiers and and so on. It's it's really really gendered uh, in really many many ways, that and that's why my the father who's living the Ukrainian father living in the family. That's why he's been called a traitor also from mm. from even his family, like from his uh, maybe not the close but but for, from you know cousins and so on and and that's something that he has to live with you know uh, and he sometimes he doesn't know if he, he should go back or not you know but is, uh, he, so over, is he over 60 Luis is he no, over no, 60 no, no, no he's no, not he, so, he, so no, how, he he, how did he get out then exactly there, there are actually people who can get out I've actually met some uh, but he was in Poland at the time he just oh. went for a work in Poland three days or something, four days or something before the war broke out. And then he was on the way back to get his family, to get to to get to his family. But on the border, he, he had to talk with his father. And his father said, you know what? Just wait for a day. Just wait for a day. We'll see. No, you never know. And during that night, his family called and said, we are leaving. And he said, okay, so let's, let, I'm going to wait for them here in the border. So, I mean, that's, that was literally just that phone call to his father made him not go over the, um, uh, the, the border. And then he had to decide, okay, so now they're here safe with me in Poland. Should we go somewhere or should I go back? And then this is when he decided, this is when I got the call from to Sweden. And I said, of course you can come. I mean, yeah, I, what what can I do? I mean, if, I, I would do the same if if I had the chance to save my family, and I'll probably do the same. I'm not, I'm, I don't know, but I think so. Uh, but and that's that's I guess that's those are the really really difficult questions and difficult decisions that we have to we have to make in in war, uh, and that's 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 what what is awful, and that's very gendered as you as you can hear. 
Yeah, and I guess there's lots of ways in which, um, obviously, lots of men, for whatever reason, won't want to fight or won't be able to fight um, for all sorts of different reasons. But of course, we know that there is a lot of pressure on men, this kind of expectation that to be a kind of real man, yeah, like the most idealized vision of masculinity perhaps is associated with militarism and, and being able to fight in wars and things like that, be this kind of hero. So I suppose on both sides, right? Also, we know that quite a lot of the Russian soldiers may be conscripts and there is, they're kind of forced to, to fight as well. Yeah. So I just do, do you have any thoughts on that, I suppose, about how these kind of pressures and expectations around masculinity are, are shaping this, this conflict, I guess? But I mean, you described it really well. But that's that's what you what that's what happens. I mean, because it's uh, it's like in your stereotypical way of being a man, it's that's what what you have to do that you, that you have to you know stand up and uh, fight for your country. But but that's the thing. That's I mean, I've been thinking about it because uh, <laughs> there is lots of. Um, there's lots of uh, discussion in Sweden on what everybody would should do. And actually, one of the party leaders from the Liberal Party, she was she was actually she had to step down because she said something like hypothetically that she was probably if if something happened, she would probably see her family, and then if if she had to flee, she would flee to Norway. But she was like talking hypothetically and then it was actually her fault because everybody aha so you're gonna flee the country you know <laughs> and, and 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 she's even a woman so but but still you know i mean i guess that's what war does you know uh, it, it brings all this conservative and uh, nationalistic and and uh, stereotypical th- views on on display and on reality and this is what all the polit- politics are about too so so it's it's what we are discussing all the time here uh, about more more weapons, more people ins- uh, inscripted in the in the army. Suddenly, suddenly in Sweden, we found billions of of crowns uh, to put in the military. But just in the pandemics, it was it was you know we were fighting for every crown here, and and suddenly we could actually find the I don't know even up to five billion crowns to to more to the from in this year to to the military or something like that so it's like you know it's everything is kind of crazy i would say and and i guess that's what what war does even for us who are not like really not in the war but around the war and in terms of sweden that that what you've just said that also connects to a very significant issue about membership of nato doesn't it because i know that's currently being discussed whether that should change as a result of russia's actions um, I wonder what you thought about that, you know, because uh, it, it's clearly a big, a big debate. Yeah, and that's, and I would say it's not even a debate anymore. I would say it's just a, almost like a reality because all the people who are against NATO or are thinking, uh, are trying to ask some some critical questions about it. It's not even, it's not even on the agenda anymore, and there, the it's it's turning really, really fast and. It sounds like Finland's gonna be part and and take um, take the step already now in in uh, in April even maybe in, in, within next week or in May at least, and it looks like Sweden would follow and it's gonna happen in June. So so it's like it's it's going really really fast and the big the big uh, social democrat party are turning turning in this question because they were against nato but now they actually turning so i think it's it's i would almost say it's a reality to be honest it's like uh, i'm i'm part of the peace organizations and stuff that are actually uh, talking about questions like that and uh, they i mean we we don't have uh, we don't have much to say we don't have any party 
like in the in the parliament anymore who is uh against militarization or like less weapons there, there's no there's no party in in not even the left or the the ecological like the green party they are still saying that they're against nato though uh, right now they the green party might also turn right. but but yes but but it's still there's like no peace party left in the in the in the in the parliament anymore. Like the the peace organizations are saying, we we don't have any allies in the and and this is what's scary because we they, we are saying okay maybe we should I mean a decision like that maybe should it should take time we should discuss it and we should have a you know maybe a referendum or something. But they say no 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 we're not going to have it because referendum you know uh, the Russians can interfere you know we can, they can mm. they can uh, <laughs> they can come with information and fake news or whatever blah 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 so we cannot have it and then I think it's actually uh, we we're not we're not we're not trusting our democracy anymore if we go that way mm. uh, and we are we do have uh, elections this year in in September already so it's really. It's a really, really big thing, and unfortunately, I would say the the politicians are eighty percent, ninety percent are for the NATO, and and the polls for from the people there about fifty percent are for the NATO. So, so it's probably going to happen. And how big how big a change does it represent, really? Because I mean, as I understand it, there has been cooperation between Sweden and NATO over the, over the years. In any case, really. So I'm yeah, wondering yeah, of course, how. Of course. How dramatic yeah, the shift is yeah, it? Exactly. In in one way, it's really dramatic because I mean, Sweden has been uh, neutral, not neutral. It's like alliance free, mm -hmm. and we we haven't been in war like for two more than two hundred years. And I mean, the Second World War was the same way. Like we 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 started to to stay neutral, like in in a way, but we still co cooperated with the with the United States and so on. So in one way, we do have operations uh, with NATO. I mean, I have friends who've worked in the military that work with NATO and and the states, but it's more it's more of the like the in the diplomatic matter, in diplomacy, and in how we how we look at ourselves, how we how we the what we what we can do, the palette of what we can do. It's getting more limited, and if we do get into NATO, we do. The, the social democrats they said no to the treaty about uh, against uh, nuclear weapons because nato and and the states said said that that would uh, be difficult for them to get into nato if they say to the to that ratification of that law the un the un ratification of against um, nuclear weapons and now they are actually having it get it makes them easier to the, for them to to say yes to NATO, so it's like you know, right. it's I guess it's written in the stars already. But but to answer your question, it's both very radical uh, and also like inevitable in a way. You know, it's like it it goes both ways. But but I think I think there's I, I'm actually surprised that not more more than not more than it's only forty six percent I think or something that are saying they are for for NATO and and the, actually the the number of people who are critical to NATO is rising already. Mm. So in the beginning of the war, it it was the other way around, and now it's it's actually the 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 number of people who are deciding to say no to NATO uh, uh, within the people are is rising. So it's but but it's not it's still less than thirty percent, and it's still it's still forty six percent who are for NATO, and 
I think it. I think it's not going to be a maybe huge change in practic practicality, but I think it's going to be really a very very big change in in how the world sees us and how the how we see ourselves and what we can do or not mm. in the future and and you know what we can do for de-escalating the situation. I think this one it's actually escalating and escalating really fast and and hard. Right. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned earlier that you're involved in um, campaigning from a feminist perspective or, or for a party, I think, called the Feminist Initiative. Uh, yeah. Presumably they have a position on this, which is kind of anti-militaristic and so on. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, I, I'm, I'm talking, I have to be honest that I'm talking with a, with a, from the political perspective because I'm, I'm part of the party and I'm, I'm part of the of the of the board of the party also so and i i i am actually the spokesman for the for the for the security questions as well because for us uh -huh. security is like a, a human security it's not about militarization it's about you know men's men's violence it's about like violence in the in the groups and the individual uh, and also militarization and so on everything it's like you know it's it's interconnected if you have this masculinity's lenses on so yeah so i I'm, I'm i i do speak from a position where where we are the only party right now who is not for nato who's not for for militarization who's against sending weapons and stuff like that and and that's um yeah, and we are, but and but we are outside the parliament. So we're not in the parliament. We don't have that much to say, and very very small party. But in the local, municipal, and uh, regional uh, levels, we can we can do some some um, some change. Like for example, in Stockholm, we are we have three seats in the in the in the municipalities the parliament. Do you want to say anything about the the goals of the party and what sort of things it has achieved so far? Yeah, because it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, I suppose you don't actually see that many like explicitly feminist political parties. So we, I suppose, we're quite interested in in it from that perspective as well. Yeah, yeah. I think you you do have women's parties or something like. We have a women's equality party, yeah. yes, here in the UK. But I, yeah, it's it, it, perhaps smaller maybe mm -hmm. than the feminist initiative party. Yeah. So for the f feminist initiative was was uh, was born in two thousand five, two thousand six. I would say just by uh, it applied pressure. Like if you have a feminist party and that you want to take seats because there were lots of people from civil society organization who are and also in the in the parties, um, specifically like social democrats and the, the left party, uh, they were they were pushing the the feminist issues uh, forward, and in two thousand fourteen. Uh, we almost got into the into the parliament because it's like a, there's a like a tr threshold like a four percent threshold and we had got three point two in in the parliament in the, in the national elections and but that was also the that year uh, 2014 all the parties said they were feminist you know so what happened was that there was like a massive feminist and anti-racist uh, campaigning and the feminist party pushed all the parties to be more feminist and more anti-racist and this this is actually when in 2014 this is actually when the social democrat uh, the first government said that they are a feminist uh, government so it, it's never it's never happened in the world i think but they said we are feminist and we have a feminist um, international like foreign policy program like uh, uh, something like that so and it's still they still say that we have a feminist but but it's like it's 
you know, this is where we can, yeah, and this is where we can ha- hold them accountable. So in, the, in one way, it's really good if they say it. Okay, so what is feminist uh, agenda then? What, what is the feminist foreign policy? What is the feminist policies for everything? So in this way, we actually achieved what we wanted in a way, the, our party. But of course, if you don't sit in the power, you don't have so much to say. So we, I mean, in the in the Stockholm area, where we, we got in into 13 different municipalities and, and the biggest ones were Stockholm, Gothenburg, Malmö, the biggest cities, Uppsala. So, so uh, of course, we do make a difference. I mean, the, everybody says that, you know. Yesterday, I spoke to activists who was working, and she said, yes, so I, I was in this small municipality, and they say, they told me that if feminist party wasn't there, they wouldn't have that that money to, the resources to, to have a women's shelter, for example, or stuff like that. So, so of course, it matters if you have feminist and anti-racist people in the parliaments. But we are, as much as we have a party, we're also activists and and uh, you know, educators. I would say, <laughs> so so we do have those three legs. You know, we we party, we activists, and we educators. And mo- many of us, like me, I come from from the civil society, and I went into the politics because I said, uh, we got we we can we can be as big as uh, really big. You know, we can make we can be talking to to the minister of gender equality, for example, and being and they listening to us and they trying to change. But we don't have people from the inside like that could actually apply pressure in the parliament and, and you know, and put the votes there. So this is why I decided, no, it's not going to be enough to be to be working only with the civil society. We need to be in, in, in the politician where the politicians are and where the, the money is, I guess, where yeah. we, we can actually uh, use the that power to, to yeah to 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 take forward the, all the feminist questions that we believe in. So that I think it's crucial. Well, that's interesting because I suppose um, perhaps often from the outside, uh, you know, Sweden is perceived as being this like world leader, you know, when it comes to gender equality, um, you know, for example, in relation to fatherhood and parental leave and things like that. But I mean, last year we we wrote a book, including with some Swedish colleagues about men's activism to end violence against women. And, and that suggested that the situation is a bit more complicated. So, for example, that even though Sweden is perceived as being this very peaceful society, for example, violence against women does remain a major issue there, as has been illustrated by, by the Me Too movement, for example. We've also seen issues around men's violence more broadly, I suppose. Like, I think a few weeks ago was were two teachers killed by um, a male student at a school, for example. So, so clearly there are big issues still with, with gender equality and, and male violence in Sweden. Um, yeah, I mean, do you have anything to say about that, about, I suppose, the, the differences between this idea of Sweden and, and the reality? Yeah, and this is where, where 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 we work a lot because there's a there's a picture that we painted a picture in Sweden for a long time, and we've been one of the major countries pushing forward the 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 feminist issues, the gender equality issues. But we kind of got stuck, I would say, in one way, and also there's a backlash uh, against that. So so this it's it's I would say it's both. It's the movement. It's both. It's like you have that still. You have we are still advancing in 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 the forms of like paternity leave and so on. Uh, now we actually have three months that that are uh, non transferable for example uh, for, for so the parents uh, the fathers could, could actually have three months and that makes that makes even more fathers to take out parental leave on one hand so in one hand you we actually have almost almost 30 percent of the parental leave days are taken by fathers so that's a that's a big step forward already 
But on the other hand, you have 25% of all fathers don't take even one day, though you have actually a possibility to take up to eight months of parental leave. And, and so we have 25% of men who don't take even even one day. So that's that's a really, I mean, of, of course, the, the, maybe the day when, because you ha- in Sweden you have 10 days that you, when, when the child is born, and then you have eight uh, or 16 months to, to, to share, yeah? So I, I'm I'm talking about those 16 months after the the child the, the child is born. Of those of from those months, there are 25% of men who don't take even one day. And I guess there's lots of things to do with that. I mean, th- this is why we have to see how we can change this so we can help. Uh, I mean, um, fathers, for example, to because they of, often they, sometimes they won't. But you know, the the culture at their place where they work or. They're, the employers are not really looking at that positively, you know. I guess more and more people are doing that, so it's not, it's not, it's it's getting better for sure. But then on the other hand, you have the backlash, and the backlash is like, no, let let the parents decide themselves. Let give give the women the 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 money so they could be with children up to three years, and, and they don't start the kindergarten. There's a backlash there because then the women stay and then they lose their their chance in the work working uh, their working place especially women of color or like uh, with immigrant backgrounds maybe they don't get easily jobs so they say okay it's better to get this this allowance you know so i can so we can live you know uh, from one salary for my man and then they really get difficult to get into the working um, to 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 work so so it it conservates the uh, and the gender gap is there. So the, 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 there's a discrepancy between and how we think we are and the facts mm-hmm. on the ground. And this is where we try to work in this in this field because we try mm-hmm. to show people, okay, it's really good that you want to be gender equal and then you feel that we are gender equal and blah, 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 and so on. But look at these numbers. Look, why is it like that? And why it's like that? And what can we do to that? You know, so we can, again, we can hold them accountable uh, against like in on individual level, but also on the political level. But again, uh, the backlash is that we, you know, we have the nationalist parties on rise. It's like almost 20% uh, they have of the votes. And they are really, really conservative and reactionary, actually. And they, they, they don't even want to have the paternity leave. Like the the maternal, they they just want to, and the abortion laws, they want to, you know, they, they want to make it harder for women and so on and so on. So they really, yeah, nationalists, they're really uh, conservative and and against gender equality, I would say. And they and they talk about this gender, you know, like a gender ideology, whatever. And they say you are trying to, to like in schools or in in kindergartens, they're saying yeah, so you are like kind of ideologically <laughs> brainwashing the kids to 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 be what they don't not are you know let boys be boys and and girls be girls and and so on and then because it's it's in the curriculum uh, and that's what it's really hard for them because it's in the curriculum you have to talk about gender transformative uh, work and so on mm. so yeah in one hand again we have laws we have uh, curriculums and stuff which are really good because they are actually been been made up in the 90s and the beginning of t- uh, 2000 on but on the other hand we have the backlash and people are fighting this and if we have a conservative nationalist takeover this this september in the elections we will have a real big backlash then then you know then the money will disappear from that uh, Probably they want to change the curriculum and everything. You know, it's going to be really, really, really hard. 
Mm. Yeah, and I suppose connecting to that kind of complicated picture, um, I mean, we have seen as well in recent weeks, there have been some kind of riots um, seemingly taking place in in some cities in Sweden mm. um, after I think like an anti-Islamic political party from Denmark said they were going to, you know, go and burn copies of the Quran in, mm. in Sweden. Mm. Um, and it seems like there have been a few kind of tensions um, of this kind in recent years. Of course, Sweden has taken in uh, proportionally more refugees mm. than most other European countries. But on the other hand, as you were saying, there's seemingly big issues with xenophobia, the rise of the far right. So yeah, I was just wondering if you have any thoughts on all of that. And, and do you, are you trying to respond to some of these issues through the work that, that you do? Yeah, of course. I mean, so first you have the picture about Sweden being really gender equal and feminist and so on, you know. At the same time, we have a picture of Sweden being really anti-racist, really open-minded, really, uh, you know. So if you do, if there are surveys that show that people in Sweden, when you ask them, like, for example, if you would have a Muslim uh, living with you next to you, blah, uh, like as a neighbor, what would you do, blah, blah, blah. And those, and those numbers are really positive for Sweden. Sweden is really up up there being like open-minded, tolerating people or whatever. Mm. But if you look in the facts on the grounds, Sweden is really, really segregated. Like, for example, Stockholm. It's like yesterday I was in a, a debate in one part of, of Stockholm. There was 200 people uh, in the venue. I was the only one who was uh, a blackhead, I say. Like, you know, I was the only non-white people in that whole audience. Can you understand? And I was I was part of the of the party, but in Stockholm there there are numbers that show that almost almost fifty percent of the people in Stockholm are non-white people, like in the greater Stockholm. But in this area, there's I, I was the only one, and I came from from another area. You understand? So the segregation is huge, mm-hmm. and and that's also there is also discrepancy there from what we think we are tolerant people, anti-racist, and how, how we do live and what we do. And that's, and there's lots of tensions there. And this is what happens with this um, riots, for example, because they're, they go to areas where, where populated by people with immigrant background, lots of Muslim, Muslim population, and lots of people who are maybe don't have jobs, you know, maybe they live in poverty and so on and so on. And there are some radical people too, of course. I mean, that's, that's for sure. But... What happens is that you you don't you know people. This is where I li- work. This is this is my, this is my this is just here you know outside here. Uh, so and what happens is that that people don't believe in the uh, like the police. They are like really police violence is uh, against young people. For example, they are being being uh, searched and stopped all the time. So there's no there's no um, uh, trust into uh, into authorities. Yeah. So when when the authorities comes, it's always something really bad. For example, in this case, they allowed this uh, this uh, radical uh, anti-Muslim or fascist actually uh, person to to make the, these things, and they knew that there was something going. And then and then the riots bro- broke out, and it's ninety five percent are young young men that that do this. Uh, there's actually more uh, the footage actually shows there are actually quite a lot of old men too who are like pushing pushing the young men too but it's 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 most mostly about young men uh, and and there are and there the police is you know using the force that they can and it you know it, it gets accelerated and it gets like more and more violent mm-hmm. so and you have the national saying look we have those they they sometimes they they say like it's not they dehumanize people that live here. Mm. 
and then they say this is not sweden this is not how we used to be this is look you see what happens when you let all these immigrants to come in but they are discriminated on the on the on the working place mm-hmm. they are discriminated in the in the living they're disc- they they are discriminated in the social issues and the and the, there there's no like a society go draws back from themselves they don't have like a the same the same um, support from the society and then you have the backlash uh, like the the violence that goes out and, and that's like frustration and it's it's actually inevitable in a way if you treat people like that if you treat people like the ukrainian people that comes in now and you you create possibilities of work and blah 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 they probably not not do that but if you welcome people with with distrust and saying they're so much more different than us you know and so on and so on and you don't help the people to get in the job and everything then you get get distrust and then it's really close to to with masculinity norms and with uh, it it gets explosive, I guess, uh, and this is why it happened, and this is why everybody now the police are saying we're gonna have more uh, force, we're gonna use more force, we're gonna yeah we we're gonna have water water cannons because we don't have that mm-hmm. we have to water cannons and we're gonna use uh, this uh, other equipment to 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 they say we're gonna we're gonna meet force by force, so it's really escalating really really fast. Yeah. I think t- time is marching on, but I wanted to ask you a slightly different thing, um, which does relate to what you've been saying, which is really where your own commitment to gender equality issues comes from. I mean, you've been working on those issues for so so long. I mean, was that a sort of gradual awakening for you, or how did that happen? Yeah. I mean, in one way, it was gradual. In one way, I always felt like I was a feminist in a way. <laughs> it's like, you know, growing up with a single mom in a country where you're not, you know, she's by herself. And there, you, you I met a lot of uh, violence against her in, in different ways. You kind of feel like something's wrong with this world, you know, with where, where, where men are being like that. Uh, so in one way, like, I guess... Um, um, more on, on like like a feeling, like a gut feeling. <laughs> I was there. Ideologically, I was totally not there. <laughs> and, but, and I was, you know, I, I played rugby for twenty years, and I've been like uh, really, I've been really violent places and violent groups and and so on, and used used violence a lot, uh, a way of you know self defense, but also like uh, like a, a way of 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 being a man or whatever. Uh, but. Uh, but all the time when I was since I came to Sweden, I was actually training training young people in in soccer and rugby, in different uh, sports, and so I had that. I, I I actually learned learned how to be you know a good leader in a way, and then I actually had the possibility to be a, a sexuality educator uh, in schools, and this is where my I woke up like you know ideologically, and then I, oh it's about gender, it's about this and that, and this is where I felt oh so my gut feeling. And what I felt in my in my body, in my in my heart, kind of connected to what I learned in my head. You know, it's like everything got mm. connected. And since then, I couldn't leave it anymore. <laughs> I had to I, I had to work with this. Right. So 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 this is actually by accident where I when I came into the to this field by yeah sexuality education, you could say. Right. And so you must have grown up with rather a different sort of notion and discourse around gender equality in Ukraine, and then you know this total. Uh, reversal or change in transformation when you came to Sweden and started working in that field. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, in Ukraine, I mean, the Soviet Union, I mean, in one way it was equal because I saw women and men working alongside each other and 
it wasn't it wasn't strange like that there was other issues about around around that uh, because I, I i only saw women taking care of children and so on and so on but but in sweden it's the other way around you have you have uh, well actually in sweden you also have lots of women uh, working in in the workplace so f- that that was the same but being a man meant more here uh, it, it's different stuff uh, it's less i would say it was it's less conservative in sweden uh, than it was in in the soviet union and uh, in soviet union you were a father you were but you were like not a father with kids more like a father figure and then you were like a, a, a fighter against the nazis and then you were like a worker that's the, those were the like the the three ma- male images but in sweden it's bit it was a bit more you know you could you could see long hair man and you could see more <laughs> metrosexual man or whatever you know you, it, there was mm-hmm. there was slight difference just there and uh, and there were more i would say that i felt men were more softer you know they were like uh, not softer i know yeah more more caring i would say in a way uh, in 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 schools for example and so on uh, so so of course it's like a, i'm 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 painting a really like uh, stereotypical <laughs> uh, way of, but but it was a bit like that i i felt so for me it was always like you i i always felt that i could be i i had lots of uh, male uh, uh, males to look up to who are different mm. and that helped me to to see that i don't have to be one way i can be different ways Sure. And that, that kind of it kind of helped me to to land on the way and, and try to to kind of work on 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 the parts that I had to work on. <laughs> yeah. And, and where does the rugby fit into that? Because you, you mentioned rugby a minute ago, playing and yeah. leading, and you know, I mean, it, in a way, I'm, I'm not probably get a whole lot of letters and emails about this, but you know, mm. rugby could be, could be seen as a sort of form of controlled violence, couldn't it? You know, yeah, it's quite sure, an aggressive sure. game. Let's face it. It's, yeah. It's a huge, yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, I mean, but that's, but that's, of course it is. And, and um, I mean, it, 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 I also learned a lot of about how to be a, a team, how to work together against a, a goal, how to, how to, to feel this camaraderie, you know, in a good way. But at the same time, also, we also sang women degraded songs. We were like, you know, th- that's, that's the double thing. I-, I thought I was a good guy. I actually opened up so we could have a, a women's team and that they would have the same, uh, the same chance for us to play rugby as us guys. And at the same time, I, 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 I sang those women degrading songs. So, so you see, it's like a really double. You could, you could feel like you are, you're a good guy, but then you're not probably doing good things all the time. But if people start, if you start uh, thinking about it, some somebody questions this, or just asking, so, but what do you, what do you really sing about? What does it mean? Mm-hmm. Then I would actually start thinking, oh yeah, by the way, that's maybe not that nice, you know, you know. But mm-hmm. the thing is, nobody did, like not not trainers, not people listening to us. So I, I think I think this is why I learned why I learned just to asking questions like, by the way, why did you, what happened there? You know, just saying that. It helps you to stop and start reflecting. Oh yeah, by the way, yeah, that maybe that wasn't that good, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's like a, some kind of um, violence prevention is already there that I learned yeah. by myself. And presumably, there are groups working on on sort of masculinized cultures in in sport. I mean, certainly, you know, there's an organisation here in UK beyond equality which has done a lot of work in this area, trying to um, address some of the things you've just been talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. We have, we have another organisation started by really young guys uh, called uh, Locker Room Talk, uh, where they work with uh, with uh, young people in the locker rooms. Actually, like uh, have before the training or after training, they have like a twenty minute talk about how to be a good 
good sport, you know, how to be a good uh, a teammate and and but about against homophobia, against uh, sexism and so on. And I think I think we're actually being a bit modest here because I think am I right in thinking you're actually you were in the national Swedish men's rugby team, Louise, which yeah, is, seems yeah. like quite I don't know how big rugby is in Sweden, but it's still really, it's small. Like... It's really small. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I did I did went to 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 play in in uh, in in England actually. And I was yeah, I mean I played until I was 30, 30 years old, but I mean I did learn a lot on how to, you know, I I started my my feminist awakening journey while I was in rugby and it was really good because then I can see uh, and point out the stuff uh, while while being in that on that field and in that with those people and, and that culture and and again I, I see lots of really really good things uh, happening there too and and this is why I think for me it's really crucial that we are different kind of men again who are uh, who are engaged in gender equality because we have to be different but then because we also can attract attract different kind of people uh, so 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 the diversity of of people in in our field has to be bigger and has to be we have to be different kind of men who are talk about this because the young man would listen easily to me or to you or you know to other people if they can uh, they can reflect themselves on on in us uh, for example so this is why I'm, I'm trying to get different kind of people into this field, uh, even though they don't feel like really feminist sometimes, you know, or whatever. But I feel if they want to change, if they want to have see the change, then we have to attract them. Then we have to open up and, and get them. Because, I mean, if somebody hadn't opened up for me, I wouldn't be here talking to you right now. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it has to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, unless you had anything else you wanted to say, Sandy, I think that's uh, I think that's no, the. Uh... I just wanted I just wanted to thank you, Luis. That was incredible, really. I mean, your story is just so uh, so extraordinary, so powerful, and mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I'm wondering how you've managed to come through it, really. But you have, and it's great, <laughs> and it's it's great to have you know such a powerful advocate for gender equality yeah. issues and and race issues, you know, working with us. So thanks. Thank you. And you're clearly doing so much brilliant work. I, yeah, I don't know how you fit it all in, but <laughs> I don't know either. I don't know either. <laughs> but I'm 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 still standing, I guess. But we'll see. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much yeah, for talking thanks. to us. Always a pleasure to talk to you, for sure. Thank you. So that was an extraordinary conversation with Luis. When you think about the experiences he's had during his life, you know, uh there's a great sense of him being a, a survivor, really, but also a fantastic contributor. You know, what, what, he's a great communicator, and he seems to have his finger in so many different pies. I can hardly believe it. I mean, I feel exhausted even thinking about it. his life um, must uh, must work in in practice. But um, uh, we normally do our little sort of summary of what we think afterwards, and uh, uh, listeners might be amused to know that the first thing that we talked about was um, Swedish cinnamon buns, which um, came into our conversation in rather a sort of random way. But leaving that aside for one, uh, being, being serious, um, what, did, what did you make of uh, the conversation we just had, Stephen? 
Yeah, I I totally agree with you, really, Sandy. I was very I was very moved, really, to hear Luis talk about. I mean, yeah, as you say, he's a hugely impressive person. He's a real asset to our movement. All the work he does is so inspiring. Um, but I suppose, yeah, you can't help but be affected by the fact of what he was saying about, as you say, everything he's experienced, and now seeing his country of birth just being totally destroyed in this horrendous, horrendous war um, that it's in. Which, of course, is so relevant to us who are, you know, talking about and looking at issues of gender and masculinity, because ultimately, you know, war is, I suppose, in one way of looking at it, it's kind of male violence writ large, right? It's usually men in positions of power sending other men, especially like working class men or men from ethnic minority backgrounds to die, to kill other men. Um, and and that has just these horrendous outcomes. But of course, it's also a lot more complicated than that because of course, women and children are hugely impacted in all sorts of ways as well, whether that's, you know, civilians being targeted um, by bombings or, you know, sexual violence being perpetrated against women, um, for example, or, but also women play an active role in all sorts of ways as agents in war and in conflict as well. And we're certainly seeing that in Ukraine. Um, you know, obviously there is this policy that men can't leave Ukraine because they're they're expected to stay and potentially uh, fight. But of course, lots of women are actually fighting, defending Ukraine as well. Um, and that needs to be recognized, I think. But also, of course, you know, resistance to this mass violence takes lots of different forms. It's, it's not just about physical violence either, right? You can resist in all sorts of different ways. Simply surviving is a form of resistance, you could argue, uh, for the Ukrainian people. So obviously, women, I think women are actually articulating that kind of resistance in lots of different ways as well, which is really important to, to acknowledge. And the other interesting thing he raised there was about the family that have come to stay um, in his house in Sweden, you know, and um, obviously there is this issue about the men between uh, certain ages up to age 60 having to stay in Ukraine to to fight. But the dad in that situation uh, is now in Sweden with his family. And, you know, it just didn't occur to me that, of course, as Luis described, well, he was outside Ukraine when the war broke out and he didn't go back into Ukraine and he waited his family and they moved they then moved to Sweden and it was so interesting and kind of humbling to hear how much uh, help the family were receiving in Sweden from Luis and but but also from um, uh, official agencies I think and how they they were setting up work and all this kind of thing and in one way you think well they're kind of set up for the the long term there. But at the same time, I was thinking, yes, but they don't really know what's going to happen in, in Ukraine. Maybe they want to go back. What have they got to go back to? And also this issue, this key issue that uh, Luis raised of how the dad is is seen by some as a traitor. And that might be a reason why he might not want to go back to Ukraine at all, you know, if he's, if he's going to be um, vilified for not fighting. So there were some major issues in there, actually, I thought. Yeah, the kind of white feather thing that like, and, and this connects with what we were saying, is it that men can be convinced and pressured to do these horrendous things to kill other people in wars. Uh, and masculinity plays a big part in that that pressure, those expectations. That if you don't participate in that, you're a coward, you're not a real man, and all of these things. Yeah. I mean, another issue which I thought was really interesting was um, what he had to say about rugby, actually. The whole issue about locker room talk and how that plays out and you know I think he he described some kind of awakening actually you know mm. as a result of being involved in those situations so perhaps it had a, a good outcome 
for him. But uh, you're just raising that makes you think of how much there is to do in that sphere. And I do wonder. I, th- I think maybe we should we should perhaps consider doing an episode around uh, not just rugby but other sports as well. And there's another issue in there which um, is quite current here is is the whole one of uh, concussion, brain injuries, and so on. You know, actually, men's health issues are part of a discussion of men's sports as well. So it just occurs to me that would be an interesting dimension to look at at some point. And actually, one other thing which I just wanted to uh, mention as well, actually, thinking about what we're talking about, about refugees, because you can't help but think about how the UK is treating refugees, you know, and how, how much Sweden is doing and, and many other European countries. But the UK has taken in so few Ukrainian refugees. And of course, now we've got this this new policy where the UK government is trying to send people seeking asylum to, to Rwanda. And there's, there's this gender element playing out there as well, that like apparently they're only going to be sending young men to Rwanda, which is kind of like, well, can't young men be vulnerable and in desperate need of, of help as well? And actually, what does it do to separate families in that in that way? Um, so yeah, I think it's actually quite shameful, you know, when you look at how the our country is, is responding to this question of refugees. Unless there was anything else you wanted to say, though, Sandy, I think we'd better call it quits there before we keep talking for any longer. But uh, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening and speak to you next time. Yes, and uh, don't forget to uh, seek out our previous episodes if you haven't already. Uh, Contact us at nowmen at gmail.com if you'd like to ask questions, make suggestions. um, Do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we look forward to speaking to you again soon. Yeah, and have a look for a cinnamon bun. They're very nice. Yeah, they they really are, especially the Swedish ones. (laughs) Thank you. Bye.